Now, for those of you um, uh, who are visiting for the first time, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastoral interns here on staff. And it's so great to see everyone here uh, to worship with us together on this Sunday morning. Now, as we continue in our worship service, what we'll be doing is we'll be reading God's word together. But before um, I turn your attentions to the screen uh, for the reading of God's word, I do want to quickly give a little bit of a a preface as to the next sermon series that we're entering into. Now, if you were here in uh, the past week, whether you were here in person or you were tuning in online, uh, you would have heard Pastor Kiernan say that, okay, now the applications to my sermon, well, We'll talk about the benefits of the resurrection. And then he just kind of left it at that, saying that's going to be the sermon series. So that is what the sermon series is. If you look in your bulletins, you'll see that it is called Because He Lives. And for the next um, following weeks, uh, it's going to be a six-week series in total. We'll be looking at what the benefits of the resurrection are, what the resurrection means for us in our lives today. And we'll be looking at the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, specifically. So with that in mind, I want to turn your attentions to the screen for Sharon to read God's word for us. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he reappeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the Christ, the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and you, and so you believed." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, growing up, one of the most important things for me as a kid were Saturday mornings. Because Saturday mornings marked the end of a very long and hard school week. Waking up in the morning, going to school, listening to teachers, and nothing against teachers, but, you know, as a kid, we have a biased perspective. And then coming home and just exhausted. But Saturday mornings were great because on Saturday mornings, I got to watch all my favorite cartoons from 8 to 12. And after watching all my favorite cartoons, then I got to go out and play with my friends and ride our bikes around the neighborhood. It was just a lot of fun. That was important for me because it was just a lot of fun. Now, having grown up a little bit more, a couple decades later, I asked myself recently, what is really important for me? Saturday mornings. I still like Saturday mornings. I still like sleeping in, taking it easy, spending time with my wife, uh, with friends, uh, hanging out, going for walks, going to a cafe, and just chilling. Saturday mornings are still one of my favorite days. 
But I also realized there were other things that became important in my life. Things like health that I took for granted before. Especially in light of COVID, health is really important for us. And there's also comfort and security that I find more and more uh, I'm drawn towards. I like to be comfortable, I like to be secure. And those became additional things that are really important for me. Now, if I were to ask you the same question, what's really important for you today? How would you answer it? Would it be family, friends, your health, your safety, career, finances? You know, all those things, they're really good things. They're they're necessary things, and those are important. But in our passage today, Paul tells all of us that the most important thing may not be all of those things that were listed above, but the most important thing is none other than the gospel message itself. The gospel message. If you look at verses three to four, you see Paul uh, outlining what the gospel message is. He says the gospel message is this, that Jesus died for our sins that Jesus was raised on the third day and that Jesus, sorry, that Jesus was buried and then that Jesus was raised on the third day. And so we ask ourselves, why did Jesus have to come and die? And the answer to that is because of sin, which is the most important problem for all of us listening to this right now, whether we're here in person or tuning in online. Because of sin, Jesus had to come and die for us. Sin. Sin is a heart issue where we love all the wrong things other than God. Sin is the breaking of God's commandments. And in fact, it's more than just that legal matter. It's also a personal matter, a personal attack to God where we no longer are friends, but we become enemies with God. Relationship with him is broken As we turn away from God, who's the source of all of life, all love, we turn away from that and we say, you know what, I'm going to do things my way. Let me live life the way I want to and follow what my desires tell me to do. And in choosing that kind of lifestyle, there's brokenness that results in death. Benjamin Franklin One of the founding fathers of the United States wrote these famous words back in 1789. Perhaps some of you may be familiar with it. He says this, in this world, nothing is certain except taxes and death. 200 years later, that's still the same thing. (laughs) Nothing is certain except taxes and death. Maybe taxes feel like death for some of us, so it's death and death. But death, death, this is something that nobody can escape. Death is something that all of us have to face in one point or another. Don't we see death all around us? War, violences, injustices that, that we see going on all across the world or even in our own backyards, in our own city, we see broken relationships, unfair treatment at work, deep hurts, that we experience. The consequence of sin is death. As scripture says, the wages of sin is death, and we see that, and we experience that today. And in this problem 
the most important problem of sin, we can't save ourselves. No matter what we do, we are just helpless and we're in need of someone to save us. And to address that, we see in verse two, Paul says this about a way out. There is a solution. If you look at verse two, it says, the gospel is by which you are being saved. Now notice, that verb, you are being saved, is a particular uh, grammatical tense of that verb. It's a present tense. It may not seem like a big deal, but it is because it doesn't just say the gospel just saved you and that's that. It's done in history and it's no longer relevant. Rather, because it's in the present tense, it's saying that the gospel saved you and is still saving you today. Jesus does exactly that when he dies for our sins. He saves us and he continues to work in us his saving grace today. Why? Because He's risen, and he's alive today. He was raised on the third day. He conquered the power of sin, the power of death, once and for all. Death no longer has the final say in our lives. This world is not all there is to it. But because Jesus rose again, and he is alive, there is hope, hope that is now and hope that is eternal. And there is new life in Jesus. And this brings us to the main point that I'd like to get across for all of us. That the gospel is the most important message. As Paul says in his words, it is a message of first most importance. And there are two reasons why the gospel is the most important message. Number one, it actually happened. And number two, it changes you. It actually happened and it changes you. Recently, I watched a Netflix show, and I'm not gonna name the name of the show in case you know, it might give away some plots and stuff, but I, I think I did my best to keep it as vague as I could. This Netflix show takes place in a courtroom, and the premise of it is that uh, a crime happened at a scene, someone, someone was killed, but no one was there to see it happen, and there were no cameras, so there was no direct evidence to point out who the criminal was. And so throughout the series of the show, uh, people come in uh, to take the stand, to give their testimonies, to provide their alibis, saying, oh, I was doing this, I was at a cafe when that uh, murder happened at that time, so that's why I'm innocent. Or I was doing this, or I was um, on an errand doing this. So everyone has a story as they're coming to give their uh, testimonies. But none of these are really airtight or convincing enough to completely rid them of potentially being the criminal. But then, near the end of the show, this evidence finally surfaces, and they called it the smoking gun. I was like, wow, okay, smoking gun, that's a pretty cool term. And once that came up, that became the undeniable evidence that's completely settled the case once and for all. It was undeniable, it was so sure, like, this person has done it. This is the evidence that we all needed. The gospel is the most important message because it actually happened. And verses three to eight show us two forms of evidences that Paul provides. The first is a little more subtle, but it's scripture, it is God's word. That's our first form of evidence that the resurrection actually happened. And the second form is the eyewitnesses, many of whom were still alive at that time. 
So let's look at the first one, scripture. Scripture, the Bible, the word of God, however we refer to it, that is the primary way that God reveals himself to us. You know, many times we may find ourselves asking the question, but how do I know what God's saying to me? I, I, I don't really know what the will of God is. Well, scripture is right in front of us. Whether it's the physical book, the Bible, or, or the electronic uh, version that you have, that is the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, to his people, and that's the way that he communicates to us everything that we need to know about what it means to obey and love him. Second uh, Timothy chapter three says that all scripture is breathed out by God. This old theologian by the name of Bavink actually says that scripture was not only God-breathed at the time it was written, but it is still God-breathing today. Do you hear that? that? That means God's very word is alive, active, and it's speaking to you right now. And that very word of God has been pointing to the moment of Jesus the entire time. If we look at our passage, three to four says that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with scripture. Jesus was buried and raised again on the third day in accordance with scripture. That means God's been building up to this moment. It, like, I, I guess a way to understand this is uh, for weddings. When a wedding is coming up, the couple usually tends to send out a save the date saying, hey, Save this date on your calendars. Make sure you don't have anything planned on this day. Make sure you free it up for us because this is going to be an important day. And then not only is a save the date sent out and then an actual uh, wedding invite is sent out reminding us when the date is, where the location is, what the time is, and then the most important part, the food. The food. Choose which food you'd like to have. But all that is to show that this wedding day is important. It's important enough that you need a lot of reminders, a lot of, I guess, quote unquote, save the dates, so that the couple can see you at that day of celebration. But what God has been doing in his word is he's been putting little hints of save the dates all throughout scripture, all throughout his word to get his people ready for that climax of when Jesus would come into our world, when Jesus would come and die for our sins, be buried and be raised on the third day. He was getting his people ready for that in his word. If you were here with us last week or if you were tuning in, Kiernan was talking about uh, the passage from Luke chapter 24 about the road to Emmaus where two disciples were walking after Jesus uh, was crucified, after he died, but they didn't know that he rose again. And they're wondering, what happened? What happened? I, I thought Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. I thought Jesus was supposed to save us. What, what happened to this guy? And then along the road, Jesus comes and encounters them and he says to them and he asks them this question. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's from the beginning of the Bible, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So let's look at some of those things. In the book of Psalm, chapter 16, this is in the Old Testament, the, the psalmist writes, for you will not abandon my soul 
to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Remember, this was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, even before Jesus came into the picture. And then, in the book of Acts chapter 2, we see Peter giving his famous sermon on the, Sunday of, on the day of Pentecost, the gospel message, as he explains to the people listening that this Jesus who just died, who's buried, and who rose again, this Jesus was delivered According to, the de- according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God raised him up. God loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, and then Peter goes on to reference Psalm chapter 16, and he talks about David who wrote these very words concerning him, saying, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. There is no way David would have known exactly what that was to mean, but other than that, God inspired him. Those were the inspired words of God. God himself essentially giving that little save the date for those who are reading and listening, that there will be a day when Jesus comes and that not only will he come, but he will die for your sins, solve the most important problem that all of humanity faces, be crucified, be killed, be buried, and be raised on the third day. This is no surprise. It was always meant to be. Another passage, Jonah. Jonah, this is where the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow up this prophet Jonah. And in Jonah chapter one, at the very last verse, it says, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. Almost seems like it's just arbitrary numbers. Three, why why three? Why couldn't it have been like five, 10, 20? Why three? But Jesus in the New Testament references this Old Testament scripture saying, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Do you hear that? Do you see how God in his word has been whispering the name of Jesus this entire time? It's not a surprise. It's nothing new. It was always meant to be. It always pointed to the suffering and it always pointed to the glory of Jesus. In the book of Psalm 22, it is written, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those words are the very words that Jesus cries out with his very last breath when he's crucified, hanging on the cross, and he cries out those same words, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? And he breathes his last. Jesus died, suffered and died for our sins. We abandon God to live our own way, follow our own heart. But on that cross, the innocent God, man, was forsaken as he bore the entire weight of God's wrath and punishment For us, on that cross, Jesus took on what we deserved, which was death. And in response, we get what we don't deserve, which is life and restored relationship with God. Jesus died and Jesus rose again. And all of scripture, all of God's word bears witness 
that this gospel message was according to God's plan from the beginning of time. Now, another reason that shows that this gospel message actually happened and it's true are the eyewitnesses, many of whom are alive. Paul goes on to list a bunch of names. He says, Cephas, Peter, then the 12, then more than 500 people who are alive today. And then James, who's the brother of Jesus. And then the rest of the apostles. He asks, go and ask them yourself. If you're curious about whether this Jesus person really did rise again or not, go ask them. They're living. They'll tell you. They'll tell you. There's also the empty tomb in which Jesus was buried. And this tomb, it belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of the Sanhedrin, which was part of the high Jewish council, where all these religious elites and leaders were part of. And so they knew where Jesus was buried the entire time. They knew where his uh, grave was. And they knew where to go in order to disprove the resurrection. On top of that, they sent soldiers to guard that tomb so that other people can't go in and steal that body or anything fishy or funny happen. But yet, they could not disprove that Jesus rose again. Lastly, we look at the explosive growth of the church, the early church. Remember Jesus' first disciples. On the night that he's betrayed, when people come with swords and spears, what do they do? They all flee. They all scatter. In the book of Mark, we read about how there was this young man, when they grabbed his cloak, he just ran out of that, naked. It's quite a funny scene, to be honest. But it's also a very a realistic picture of how scared and terrified all his disciples were. They didn't want to die for this, this cause of Jesus. We look at Peter, who was one of the most closest disciples. He was in the in-group, among the in-group of Jesus. And he, Peter himself denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times saying, I don't know that man. I really don't know that man. And then he starts swearing, cursing, saying, I, I have nothing to do with that man. That's what happens on the night that Jesus is betrayed. Those are the disciples that were around him. But yet, after the resurrection happens, something changes. Because now, these, these frightened Fugitive disciples suddenly become these fearless witnesses and martyrs for the risen Lord Jesus. And through them, the early church explodes in radical faith. I mean, if there were any doubts at all, there wouldn't have been a point for dying for a meaningless cause. But yet, clearly, they were convinced. They were so absolutely sure about the fact that Jesus rose again, that this is the radical transformation we see in their lives. You know, there are many things that we consider to be true and we believe to be true today. And when it comes to the gospel message, there is good evidence. God himself testifies about it in his own word. There are living eyewitnesses at the time who could testify that this resurrection took place and they saw the risen Lord Jesus. 
And also remember, in the time of Rome at that time, rebellion and challenging the Caesar, Caesar, the lordship of Caesar meant death. And these early Christians, what they were doing was they were proclaiming with their mouth, saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. By saying those words alone, that meant death and execution. And yet, they were doing that, and they were saying it because they knew it was true. So if you're investigating today, could this be the most important message for you to hear? Could this be something that you can commit your life to as you accept Jesus and experience that hope and that new life in him? If you're a believer, does this gospel message that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again, does that fire you up like it fired up these two disciples when they were walking on the road to Emmaus? Because it's something that's actually happened and it's true. If you're doubting today, take that leap of faith because the gospel has withstood the test of time up to now and it is trustworthy for you to believe in. This gospel message is the most important message because it actually happened. And secondly, the gospel is the most important message because it changes you. I want to turn your attentions back to uh, the scripture verses, uh, verses 8 to 11. As Paul wraps up this section of our passage, he goes on to give his own personal testimony about witnessing the risen Jesus. Now, you have to understand what kind of guy Paul was before he encountered Jesus, because he was a totally different man. He himself says it in our passage that he was unworthy because he was persecuting the church of God. But hear this, he was doing that all the while being fully convinced that that was the right way to live, that that was what honoring and worshiping God meant, persecuting his church. And his salvation was based off of all the works, how hard he worked for God. In Philippians chapter three, in response to a lot of these um, leaders who were saying, you need to work out your salvation, you need to work for your salvation and earn your salvation that way, Paul says, you wanna really, com- you wanna really compare confidence in our works? All right, let me, let me come in and let me, let me share a couple things. I was circumcised on the eighth day, exactly according to the law, the, tr- uh, the customs of when to be circumcised. He was circumcised on the eighth day and then he was from the tribe of Benjamin, meaning he, was a, he had a direct lineage in one of the 12 original tribes of Israel. He was, a, he was from the tribe of Benjamin himself. And he says, I was a Hebrew among Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal and passion, I persecuted the church. I was killing Christians, all in the name of God. That was the kind of guy Paul was before. But then he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And we see this in Acts chapter 9, where Jesus appears to Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which Paul responds, who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. That encounter with the risen Jesus completely transforms his life. Grace changes him from someone who worked against Jesus, who was persecuting Jesus, to become now someone who receives persecution by, through countless beatings, imprisonments, hardships, all for the name of Jesus. It was by the grace of God. Paul's life is radically transformed and changed. Before he was an enemy, he was unworthy, as he claims. As now, he's an apostle, one who's been personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself to go out and to proclaim his name. All that, because of the resurrection, Jesus isn't just another figure, a character in history who once lived. No, rather, Jesus has been raised and he still lives today. And we are able to experience his very real presence through his grace that transforms us more and more into his image. And so, what's that mean for us? If you feel unworthy, if you feel unlovable, if you feel like you're just not good enough today, you're not alone. Paul felt that way. And I'm sure many of us may be feeling that way right now. I know I've definitely felt that way many times before. We may have done things in the past that we regret. We may still be struggling in areas that we wish that we could just overcome. Just struggling to to forgive someone. Just struggling to love someone. We may still feel unworthy because these things seem to define us. But here's the good news the most important news of the gospel. If you missed everything that I talked about up to now, that's okay, just uh, tune in for this part. There is grace for you today. There is grace for you today. We see in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Those are Paul's words. By grace, Jesus has come to die for your sins and to rescue you from that unworthiness. No longer are you defined by condemnation, but in Jesus you become the righteousness of God. There is yet grace for you today. By grace, Jesus was raised from the grave, and he says to us, take heart, for I have overcome the world. By grace, God says to each of us who looks to Jesus, He says, I have redeemed you. And this is from the book of Isaiah. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. And those whom the Father has called, no one on this world, not even the devil himself, can snatch us out of God's hands. That is the gospel message. That is the most important message for us to hear today. 
And it's the most important because it's actually happened according to scripture and eyewitness testimony. And it's the most important message because it changes you by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who has risen and who is alive with you today. This is where our sure and certain hope comes from. This is where true life can be found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming into this world to die for our sins, to be buried and to be raised on the third day. Thank you for loving us. For those who do not know you yet, would you reveal yourself to us in such a way that we see the beauty of who you are, how everything in scripture points to you. Help us to be able to see that and come to accept you as our Lord and Savior. And for those of us who are followers, who do believe in you, but yet we find that our faith is is a little stale, a little dry, is in question. May this truth of the resurrection be a firm reminder for us that this actually happened and there is grace that is continuing to change us and to transform us more and more into your image today. Would you be with us in this way? And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this time, uh, I'd like to invite Tarek up, and I think there is a little bit of time for a Q&A. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Um, the first question here says, uh, in my philosophy class, we spoke about how it's not reasonable for one to use a text to prove the information in a text. Why do we solely rely on the Bible to believe in Jesus' truths? Shouldn't we be looking for and talking about other historical evidence for Jesus being who he says he is? That's a great question. Um, thank you uh, for asking that. And I'm sure that question actually is a question that a lot of us have in mind as well. And the answer to that is that the Bible, yes, it is a book, it is, it is text, but at the same time, we believe that it's more than just a book. It's more than just a text. It is the word of God himself revealing who he is to us. We believe that whatever is written in the Bible has been inspired by God himself. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is this. To believe that the resurrection happened, to believe that, there, uh, to, to believe that this text, what it's saying about this resurrection is true, is ultimately tracing back to the belief of there is, is there a God? Do I believe that there is a God? And it, that becomes the starting point for this. Because if there really is a God, then the next step from that becomes, did he write this Bible? And if he wrote the Bible, then what the Bible says about Jesus rising again from the dead, could that be true? Might that be true? And that would be the starting point uh, for this question. In terms of uh, other historical evidences, I know I uh, touched upon uh, the eyewitnesses and um, 
when we trace back to history about whether this person of Jesus really existed or not, uh, that could be another starting point uh, for you to look into, uh, for there are accounts of that. But when it comes to the resurrection itself, it does become ultimately a question of uh, faith. Great question. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. There's one one more here. Uh, Was Jesus in the heart of the earth for three days and two nights? Uh, Why did Jesus say three days and three nights? Three days and three nights, as opposed to three days and two nights. Uh, yeah, I can, I can repeat the question. Sure. Here. Was Jesus in the heart of the earth for three days and two nights? Why did Jesus say three days and three nights? Okay. So, um, great question. Let me take a stab at it. If I can't answer it, I'll ask Howard, who's in the front <laughs> afterwards. But uh, from the book of Jonah, it says three days, three nights, and it says uh, to the depths of the earth. Um, and that... so I'll I'll get to the question. In that reference, it does talk about how Jesus, uh, or Jonah, uh, experienced a very near death-like experience where he was literally at the gates of death itself. But God rescued him. And so when it comes to the question of was he in the heart of the earth, like underneath the earth, um, I can't really answer that. I don't know. All I know is he was in, in the tomb and whatever happened in there, I don't know what happened, but we do know that he rose again, so I can't answer that um, question of the heart of the earth. When it comes to the difference between the three nights and the, uh, and the uh, two nights, um, that I don't really know how to answer right now, so I'll have to pass on that. But please email me again, and uh, I'll get back to you about the difference in uh, the number of the nights. Great question. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Stephen.